Hi, I'm Laura, and this is Uncatalogued. Yes, it all started out as a mild curiosity in the junkyard. And now it's turned out to be quite a, a quite a great spirit of adventure, don't you think? But I don't want to go among mad people. Oh, you can't help that. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> so welcome to Uncatalogued. It's a podcast about museums, galleries, libraries theatres, cultural stuff, basically, and those untold stories about what goes on behind the scenes, I suppose. Our first episode has got quite a generic theme, it's called Curiouser and Curiouser. So we'll be looking at two curious places that you may have never heard about before, and we'll be chatting to some lovely people who work there. Also during this episode, quite excitingly, you'll learn why Benedict Cumberbatch may well be Sherlock in real life. And you'll also learn about where the best place on earth is. Spoiler, it's apparently Bolton Library. Hello, can I help you? Hello, I'm here to see Glenn. Uh, yes, can I have your name, please? It's Laura. Thank you, Laura. Come through and push the gate, please. Thank you. So that's me, with all my fingers intact, thank goodness. I'm entering what can only be described as a huge and quite intimidating building actually. I'm entering Blythe House in West London and Blythe House was first made in the early 1900s and it was originally a post office savings bank. It was designed by Edward Tanner. It's red brick, it's Portland stone, it it looks like a huge hospital or a school or something and apparently it was quite revolutionary at the time. Apparently about a thousand women worked there. Um, as well as those of men, obviously. Um, And funnily enough, they had separate wings. They had the women's wing and the men's wing. Um, And they even had a little uh, chicken run, they called it. A sort of little um, covered tunnel between between the two wings in the central courtyard where women could pass without being looked upon by their male colleagues. It's now... Um, since the 1970s, a store, basically, for three museums. Not just one, three. Let's put them all in there. Uh, the V&A, the British Museum, and the Science Museum. And it genuinely is one of the most curious places that I've ever had the pleasure of visiting. So I wanted to show you around. And the person showing us around is the lovely Glen. Um, So I'm Glenn Benson, and I'm the site manager of Blythe House, which is an unusual role because um, I actually work for all three museums who are based at Blythe House. And as a consequence, I have the wonderful pleasure 
Uh, and I, I do realise I, I do realise it's a, and a privilege too of being able to go from the British Museum to the Science Museum to the DNA spaces of light, which most curators, most conservators, can't do. There are very few people who have that option to go from, you know, literally from you know spaceships to Chippendale chairs to Stone Age tools, uh, all within a matter of yards of each other. He's right, it's an absolute madhouse of objects and stories. Um, the most unexpected things are around every corner and behind every locked door. I was lucky enough to spend about an hour just, just scratching the surface. We went all the way up to the roof and then all the way down to the basement, just scratching the surface of what the bowels of Blythe household. I've got some keys. Luckily, the Science Museum and the DNA have kind of a system whereby one key sort of overrides the others. But the British Museum are a little bit more traditional, so there's at least. So is that actually? So that's just. Yeah, those those will do the science and the DNA. Right. These ones, all all that lot does the DNA. So here we here we are on the roof. This is this is very typical science museum store with them. It's very visually exciting. It uh, is. Yeah, because there's everything sort of standing around. You can see it all. Bits bits of kind of um, pilots yep. um, uniforms or models for aircraft or um, there's a basket from a balloon. There's a yeah. there's a sort of cameras. There's a sort of drone. What we would now call a drone, but that's from sort of 20 years ago. Um, there's a um, uh, some sort of wind tunnel test model for something like a sort of hurricane or something like that up yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and then we've got sort of models of cars and models of planes and, and things like that. Uh, at the other end of the room there are roller skates and ice skates. Oh, um, right, wow. Right through <laughs> to bits of planes and trains and, and cars. These are models for testing the aerodynamics of planes. Mm -hmm. um, the V&A's Cloth Worker Centre. My argument is this is the world's biggest wardrobe because this room is 98 metres in length. And down both, pretty much down both sides are black rolling racking. And behind you uh, is all women's fashion arranged by designer in alphabetical order. And then we have all, we have about 1,200 tapestries going back to the sort of medieval period. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and the collection goes from dynastic Egypt and Coptic Egypt right through to contemporary fashion. Mm -hmm. um, though people really associate the V&A with fashion, the textile collection originally was much more about furnishing fabrics, historic fabrics, tapestries, mm -hmm. upholstery, that kind of thing, rather than fashion, which is mm -hmm. now what tends to dominate people's thinking. Yeah. Uh, the fashion really gets going in the late 1970s. Yeah, so, and because, you know, you've got the light sensitivity and all that sort of thing, um, the objects are all sort of put away. So it's not like the Science Museum store where we just come from, where everything was kind of visual. So we have about 7,000 drawers. Mm -hmm. And typically I've opened one that's empty. Save um, this drawer for dire walking stick, stick request. request. So, hmm. so um, but 
you so that you have all these drawers and then they're all in the drawers are those objects which are best stored flat and then above them we have what you might be like a more like a wardrobe at home which mm -hmm. is with a rail with um, dresses because we're in the, the women's section hung um, and they're all each one's protected in a special handmade bag that volunteers make and then on the front of each one is a, is a little snapshot of what's inside the mm -hmm. bag and some basic information about it. Um, so that helps you to find things. And there are 54,000 textiles in this store. Um, Walking sticks, canes and whips also, <laughs> apparently. Parasols and umbrellas. Yeah, because it's, it's also about accessories. Mm -hmm. And so it covers hats and shoes and fans and... Parasols and all that sort of things. It's not just about uh, fashion. So we're standing at the east end of the B&A's bigger furniture store. Mm -hmm. So again, this room is getting on for 100 metres in length. And to give you some idea of the scale of what we're talking about, it's all the way down the left-hand side, as far as you can see, are chairs in chronological order. They're divided by country, and then they're divided, then they're and then they are stored chronologically. And this is where Blythe House really makes sense to me because Blythe is a three-dimensional library. Yeah. And if you are studying chairs, what you really need to do is to kind of see how they gradually evolve. And then all the way down the right-hand side are things like sideboards and chest of drawers and, and coffers and things. DNA's clock store. Uh, all, all three museums have clocks in, oh. in their collections. But this is the B&A's one, which is predominantly long case clocks. Yeah. So, and arranged in chronological order. We tend to take the, the guts out of our clocks because we're trying to take the strain of, so we take the weights out mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but here is a whole is a series of shelves with all the sort of winding mechanisms and uh, things like that. And the, the, another one of my absolute favourite things is that we have this screw that we've had since 1869 and it has its own little bag and it's all labelled and... and you know, we know exactly from what clock it came, but we've had that, that screw since 1869. I, I think back to my dad's shed with these endless jar, coffee jars, sort of Maxwell House coffee jars full of nuts and bolts and screws and, and things. And he used to have to tip them all out onto a piece of newspaper every time he looked for a particular size screw or something. And here we are with this screw that we've diligently looked after since 1869. So, uh, yeah. Good slide. <laughs> clock parts removed from Tim Hay's desk. Yes. Um, May 2002. Unidentified clock parts. Um, I know it's, it's <laughs> someone just storing them in their desk yeah, for a rainy day. Material relating to the history of the performing arts in the UK. Mm -hmm. So that's rock, pop, opera, ballet, puppetry, circus, uh, anything that's live performance and is in the UK, really. And we've been collecting it since about the 1920s. These are all costumes for Danny LaRue. Uh, it's Widow Twanky. Aladdin, Widow Twanky. Yeah. That's it. Um, I love reading the labels, actually, on the boxes. Yeah, me too. Because you get things like, you know, Margot Fontaine's tutu or something, or uh, headdress for a fairy. It's quite, it's quite a good one. Yeah. Or the kilt from Adamant's Prince Charming video. Uh, um, so Barry Humphrey's Sydney Opera House hat. Yeah, so there's a collection of very famous sculptures, you know, that are all, you know, but they're all in plaster. Um, so, uh, and I guess, you know, these ones from the days when we used to make plaster casts. So down at this level, there's, you know, 
surgical instruments, uh, iron lungs, um, medical kits, uh, amputation saws, all this kind of nice gruesome stuff. Pestles and mortars, more than Jamie Oliver's can throw a stick at. Jars for leeches, uh, sculptures of saints, and my favourite is Saint Levertine, who's the patron saint of headache sufferers, because he's doing this sort of, he's holding his head with his two hands, and, and, and they've got all these different versions of it, where he's got a, we have ear trumpets, we have um, false teeth, dentist chairs, then pedal-driven drills, which are very scary, um, being laid out here for inspection, are all things to do with hearing, so we have uh, tuning forks for testing people's ability to hear, uh, vibrations and things and various devices to help you collect sound before hearing aids were invented. There are two things I really love in Blythe House. One of them up is where we were up in the trains, planes and automobiles bit um, where there's a wonderful sign that says um, propeller testing today and there's a gap for the date and underneath it says car parking inadvisable right. and it's that <laughs> use of the word inadvisable. That's one of my top objects in Blythe House. One of my, uh, my second top object is this barometer from the 18th century from in the V&A, which says um, inclined to dry, inclined to wet, and in the middle it gives you the option of doubtful. <laughs> doubtful. I love, I love the idea that the weather might be described as being doubtful. Doubtful. I think it's mostly doubtful. <laughs> um. So as you've probably got the sense, Glenn... Ben's got a lot of information up there in his brain. Um, he knows so much about the objects and so much about Blythe House. But he can also tell you some pretty cool stories about filming. So being such a, an amazing building, Blythe House is quite a popular film set. And he's got some, some great stories about that. I mean, it's like when they do the filming here. There's a wonderful buzz there's a sort of the morale of the place kind of lifts, yeah, uh, you know, and, and people kind of surreptitiously hang out of the windows to try and spot Eddie Redmayne climbing out of, you know. But Eddie Redmayne was filming in the central courtyard that we were looking into earlier from the roof. He had to climb out of a window for the film The Danish Girl. And I sort of turned around and I could see all these faces of the staff poking out of all the, you know, from all, through all the windows. <laughs> um, this is where Helen Mirren and Ryan Reynolds filmed The Golden... Um, the woman in gold. We had to pretend to be the Belvedere Archive in Vienna. Um, so this is one of these vast rooms again. We, we, don't, we wouldn't allow them to rummage through our own stuff. No. Um, so we very carefully removed our things mm -hmm. and we put fake boxes in with kind of fake old magazines, mainly car trader magazines, <laughs> as I can tell, and sort of an Argos catalogues and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, pizza, and pizza leaflets. Um, which, um, so as they walked down this long corridor surrounded by all these boxes, mm -hmm. they could open a box and have a rummage in looking for this critical piece of paper. That, and then they have what's called a eureka moment where Ryan Reynolds finds the critical piece of paper. Right. Um, but we all stood around going, why didn't they just ask the archivist? So Helen sort of says to Ryan Reynolds' character, you know, Randy, this is going to be a long afternoon, you know, we better get stuck in. Thinking, just go to that computer terminal and it will be kind of on there, or the card index. Because um, that's what we do all day long, we catalogue all this stuff so you don't have to kind of guess where it is, you can just go straight to it. And the other really <laughs> scary thing that happened in here was I, gave, I did a tour for Benedict Cumberbatch between shots of Ticket I was by. And he's scarily clever, absolutely charming, as you mm -hmm. can imagine. Oh, yes. And he walked into this room, and we are looking at 
hundreds of thousands of boxes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, tens, sorry, tens of thousands of boxes. I mean, there's 35,000 box files on that side alone. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he said, do you think they'll have anything relating to when I was in the royal court in such and such, you know, 19 whatever, and, 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 and when I was performing with Gary, meaning Gary Oldman, who was downstairs, and I'm thinking, how on earth <laughs> am I going to find in a room with tens of thousands of archive boxes? Yeah. Because it was after hours, I didn't have access to the, to the, to the database. Yes, yeah, or an archivist, yeah. Or an archivist, because he's just come decided he wants to have a quick whiz around the building between shots. And I'm saying, oh, I don't know, that might be quite difficult, um, yeah. you know, and I'm trying to distract him with other things. Um, <laughs> and he says, do you think it might be that box over there? And I look up and there is a box labelled Royal Call. And he opens the box and lo and behold, the piece of paper on the top of the box is Benedict Cumberbatch's performance in whatever play it was with Gary Oldman at the Royal Court Theatre. And I thought, now I know why you're Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought, of all the millions of pieces of paper in this door, he comes across the one, the one thing that refers to him. As you've gathered by now, Glenn's pretty all right. We like Glenn a lot. In fact, the staff at the V&A call him Mr. Blythe. He's incredibly helpful. He can tell you a great story, as you know. I asked him if he thought this is where he'd always end up. I, never, I had no intention of working in museums. I, as I think I mentioned, I wanted to be in retail management. Mm. Uh, and it was on the Selfridges management training scheme at one point. I started off working in Sainsbury's as a sort of Saturday person and then uh, you know, doing shelf filling. And then I, because I wasn't very keen on being at school, I, got, I sort of allowed my hours at Sainsbury's to increase to the point, I think, towards the end of my A-levels, I was practically full-time. And um, I don't think my school knew that. Um, but <laughs> and I got a taste for earning some money. And I think that's also why I didn't go into having a degree and all those sort of things. But then I think, you know, there was slight snobbery or whatever. Maybe or maybe my, my siblings said, hmm, don't work at a shop. Um, I wanted to be a gardener originally. Uh, that was my first ambition as a child, I think, which was a bit odd. I wanted to go to Kew Gardens and learn to be a gardener. Then practicalities kicked in and I went, I thought, oh, well, I worked for the civil service. I just needed a job. Um, I had a partner at the time and she was going through art college. I thought, you know, kind of, I need to be the, the grown-up and earn money and do stuff like that. So I applied for the Ministry of Defence, the civilian side of the police force, Metropolitan Police, and the V&A. And I was offered the civilian side of the police and the V&A. And I chose the V&A because it wasn't shift work. And it is the only reason why I ended up here. And I really did think, I'd, I mean, I, could, I, I, I thought about this, and I really do think I, those early days, I thought I'd made a terrible mistake. Um, I really did. I thought, on my first day, my first boss, Alan, said to me, he said, oh, I don't really know what to do with you. But you see that big pile of paper over there? You just go and sort it out. I went into um, estates as we now call it, though it was works in those days. And I had a wonderful job uh, where I used to go around the 10 different buildings that the V&A then used to occupy. Um, and, and in some cases, I had to go to some of those buildings and just check that the, the person who was based there was sort of still with us, really. Um, we had a building in East London, not far from Brick Lane. And having clambered over the kind of the rubbish to get through the back door, because it was behind a whole series of restaurants who didn't seem to 
ignore the fact that it was uh, a doorway to one of our buildings. Um, there was a member of staff who worked there on her own, and I had to kind of, kind of go and check on her, really. And in those days, when you joined museums, especially as admin people, you just had to have a good education. You didn't have to have degrees and postgrads and everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I've just got a couple of not very good A-levels and quite a lot of O-levels, but, or what they're now called, but in those, <laughs> those days there were O-levels. Um, so I've got nine, nine of those, but a couple of lousy A-levels. So, um, but that didn't matter. It was, again, you, you had to come with what was considered to be, in those, called in those days, a, a good general education. And that was in 1984. Glenn's worked for the V&A for 32 years, 15 of which have, have been at Blythe. I suppose what I really do all day is, is problem solve or solution find is perhaps a more positive way of putting it. So people come to my door, whether it be my light bulb's gone out <clears throat> um, or do you have a spare such and such or I was thinking about inviting 500 school children to come in and, and do some learning experiences with us in, in the autumn term, do you think that might cause a problem? I do all the stuff that the, so that the curators and conservators can concentrate on being curators and conservators. I think that's the other role I have. Mm-hmm. Um, they need certain conditions, facilities, materials, things to do their job. And my job is to kind of make sure they don't need to worry about that. So I like interacting with people as well. I think that's the other thing you get out of working in museums. You've got to be kind of, you know, in, irrespective of what Hollywood might portray, Actually, most people who work in museums actually like people and want to talk to people mm-hmm. and engage with them. I think museum people generally are really are quite practical. I mean, we, we tend to believe that they're kind of these intellectual academics, and there, and there are some, and there are some scarily clever people within all the museums, but equally they're all, it's, we're all trying to find ways to protect our collections, explain our collections, come up with new ways of engaging with the public, come up with new ways of engaging with donors and people who might pay for things. So, and you've got to project manage, you've got to people manage, money manage, um, which I think some people don't necessarily associate with museums. They kind of see the, the view that Hollywood portrays of the sort of slightly weird person sitting in a dusty uh, archive, but, it, but they're very practical places, they're very, there's a lot more goes on behind the scenes than kind of you imagine. I think that museology and, and caring for collections has become a lot more professional focused science based, yeah. like a, you know when I started, you know, we were quite happy to store stuff in lovely old wooden cabinets that looked beautiful, but weren't doing anything for the objects mm-hmm. um, so I think that's changed, I think the other thing museums I guess have a lot more money based you know we have to generate a lot of our own income mm-hmm. um, and that that's a lot that's happened only in the last maybe decade or so I guess mm-hmm. um, certainly when the, in the 1980s when I joined okay hiring out the front entrance for a bit of a party for some somebody mm-hmm. was you know happened every now and again mm-hmm. now I think it's almost you know six days a week yeah, yeah. so um, that that's changed. I think, con- and I, I've seen the changes in conservation as well. Uh, I think again, conservation has gone from being uh, has gone has become a science as well. I think that's another another thing. So, the conservatives are, are very skilled 
you know, um, you know, in the in 1980s, you know, the people who swept the floor and cleaned the toilets then went on to move objects. Yeah, so we don't do that anymore. You know, there are, there are you know, object handling. The people who move the sculptures and the furniture and everything else are now again very heavily skilled people. You know, moving a one-ton piece of sculpture. To make sure that one you don't kill anybody and two you don't break it is, is, a, is a big skill um, but in the past we thought it was perfectly acceptable for those same people then to put on a different color coat and go off and kind of clean the galleries and and also we've got you know a lot more information and learning people i mean they're called education in the 1980s but now we have information and learning so there's a lot more about that there's a lot more of engagement with people outreach I mean, you would never have dreamed of having artists in residence back in the 1980s, you know, letting these weird people in and, you know, uh, behind the scenes. So all that sort of thing has changed uh, a lot. We're a slightly different world. We, we're trying to keep this stuff forever. Yeah. And yeah. That's, our, that's our legal duty, uh, is to keep all this amazing stuff, whether it be bits of Concord or whether it be, you know, medieval tapestry or you know, some sort of, you know, Peruvian um, cloak, you know, it's, it's there to be kept for as long as we can possibly keep it. Eventually, nature will eventually take its toll on it and, and it will eventually fall to pieces. But in the meantime, we've, our job is to try and keep it forever. It's not, um, you know, if you were operating out of a kind of warehouse in Shoreditch with bare walls and, and, and the exhibition's going to come along, it's going to be an experience, you're going to do stuff, and it might get dismantled at the end. It's a very different thing from, you know, you're trying to keep a, you know, 500-year-old wax model in good condition, or, or whatever, I, I don't know, I mean, it's hard to explain, but you just, there are kind of parameters, because you're trying to protect those collections, because at the end of it, the collections are everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's why, that's why everyone yeah, I mean, the, pe the people are very important, and yeah. how you interpret it, but without the amazing stuff, um, you know, it's, it's, that's the core of what we're all about, really. My second story is about when I went to meet another lovely gentleman called Matt Nicholson. Matt works at the Wiener Library and in case you've never heard of the Wiener Library I'll let Matt explain to you what it's all about. The oldest uh, archive um, and library concerning the Holocaust. Uh, so it actually started in 1933. Uh, before it even happened, which makes it quite a unique um, example of an, an archive like this, in that it began as like a contemporary record, uh, and then it actually had to be moved from different countries uh, as fascism spread. Um, so it started in uh, Amsterdam, and then in uh, '39, when the Nazis invaded, it moved to London. 
and it was used by the uh, Ministry of uh, Information uh, for propaganda purposes. Um, then it was used again uh, for the ne uh, Nuremberg trials. So um, it's got quite a breadth of, well, uh, documentation really. Um, but also it's, it's gone from being a contemporary record to a historical record, which is, is really interesting. Particularly when you go through it, you can see how different people who've been in the library have uh, documented things. And yeah, so it's it's pretty pretty big archive, really. An awful lot of refugee testimony, um, and it can be letters, uh, passports, past documents, and it's it's quite. It's what I really like about it is that basically you have somebody's life on paper mm -hmm. there. Um, sometimes doesn't end happily. Mm -hmm. um, but I, th I think the main thing, the main thing that's important about this library is that because that record is there, um, it's a record of that person who may not have survived, who would have otherwise been um, removed from history, basically. Um, so for each, each record on each person we have, um, to me it resembles the person rather than just the document, uh, which is why it's quite important. As you can imagine, Matt's got some pretty sad stories, but also some pretty amazing and uplifting stories. The thing about working in front of house as well is that you get to talk to people. Um, and you hear stories, particularly in this, this library, you hear things that you don't hear in any other part of your life. Some of them, you know, very difficult, but um, yeah, when, when you get people in and they're just looking around and you start a conversation and it eventually like, leads to them having more of a role in the library or they give their testimony to you or tell you about their, their family and their, their lives, that kind of thing, things that have been influenced by this. I really like that. Um, I've always really enjoyed that. Um, I've got plenty of time for that. And also, you don't know what you're going to run into. I mean, um, I met a guy, he's a lovely bloke, and it turned out this really nice old man was one of the first people into Belson concentration camp when it... Um, was liberated and it blew my mind slightly because he was just so lovely. So he just sat down and had to chat with me about it and it was amazing. But it hadn't really, it basically, you know, it's shaped his life but he'd done a lot to, uh, a lot of good after it really. Um, yeah. And that, that kind of thing where you just encounter people. We had this exhibition on the um, Kitchener camp, which was a camp. It was a First World War training camp, but they used it to house uh, um, German males, uh, German nationals uh, during the war. Um, and yeah, basically, um, this old lady came in, had a look around, and then she said, uh, oh, that's me. And she pointed to this picture of this little girl being held up by her father. And it was her, and she had no idea that that picture existed. Yeah, she was called Stella, so made friends with her 
Um, and she just happened to pop by. She wasn't even coming in especially. Yeah. Uh, so we got all the information on, on that and her yeah. life story. I think she was a kinder transport refugee. Um, and yeah, just, I'm kind of just in touch with her, just kind of seeing how she's doing. Yeah. Um, she wrote about us. It was lovely. That's really cool. Um, but somebody came in and um, I started talking to him. And his parents, they were in Prague. And uh, they survived by... They, thought, they fortunately had enough money to kind of have counterfeit documents produced. And they survived by uh, pretending that they were actually a couple having an affair. I mean, they were married. But this has actually happened. They both decided, right, um, we don't accept that the Gestapo are as good on bureaucracy as they say they are. Because part of it was that, you know, this fear of their efficiency would mean people would just hand themselves in. So they thought, no, okay, we're going to test that and we're just going to try and survive. Because uh, they couldn't get out. They got the sun out on the kinder transport. Um, so basically they survived for two years uh, until liberation by moving from like house to house, then like hotel to hotel. And then when people were suspicious, they actually did just say, like, please don't tell anyone because my husband is a policeman and we're having an affair and we're very much in love and it worked it worked about a dozen times I mean it nearly caught once but they got away with it and um, I quite like the, there's something really amidst, amidst all the horror of it and there's plenty of that there are these like stories which are like really uplifting and actually just kind of amusing sometimes like that the, the, the sheer balls to do that yeah, I was going to say that's <laughs> ballsy I it's, like it's that. pretty stunning yeah <laughs> um, yeah and they all survived they met up again after the war I asked Matt if it was difficult working with such a harrowing subject matter on a day to day basis but I didn't realise how much it would affect me um I mean, I, I don't deal with some of the darkest parts. I think some of the archivists deal with more, you know, regularly difficult things. But um, I, it, it does come down to pretty much every day you meet people who have lost people or have their stories to tell about, about that, and it's very difficult. You'd have people coming in talking to you about what happened and how they've been affected by it. And then you have to go back to ordering some stationery or producing some pamphlets and it, it's that's the hard bit is switching from one to the other because you, you can't really do it all, all that well sometimes at this point you may be noticing some similarities with Glenn this wasn't really my intention it sort of happened by accident but they're both such practical guys. They're both real grafters. They're total people people. They love chatting. And they've got a real interest and a love for what they do. But interestingly, they've got completely different ways of how they got there. I started volunteering when I was 17 because I was one of those cool teenagers who likes volunteering museums. So yeah, I started then 
just in an archive in Chester, um, which was great, really good fun. Um, never really wanted to do anything else. Partly it's probably I didn't have any other idea, but I never thought of working on anything else. It always seemed to make sense that I'd okay. go here. My favourite museum when I was growing up was the Doctor Who experience, which was in Langothlin in Wales. Yeah. Sadly gone now because Doctor Who's popular again. <laughs> but I, I was I was there before it was cool. <laughs> um, that's that, that's quite yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, um, what did they have? Did they have original Daleks? And oh, like, they did. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. But it all kind of been forgotten about as the series had. Yeah. So it was this this big old building, and it was like a I think it was like a plastics factory. Best thing ever as a kid. Started doing museum studies. I got I got a scholarship to go and to go and do it, uh, which rescued me from the doll. That was quite nice. And so I'm still in touch with the lady who paid for it, um, which is lovely, Elizabeth nice. Pestel. So that paid for my course fees, which mm-hmm. were good. Um, yeah, so I did the museum studies for a year in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. It's been a hell of a like, fight getting to this stage. I mean, I, I did move around. I basically moved around the country for a year, mm-hmm. just went where work was available, and it's pretty knackering. Yeah. Um, doing like two part-time jobs, or I think I lived in five places in a year, but it was the only way to go, keep going. Really. Yeah. yeah, I think you have got to keep going. I think that's the sort of key, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just well, if you really want to do it, I didn't expect to be like a curator or something, but that's also. I mean, I was I was unemployed for my. Um, well, I mean, I had, I had a job at Beamish Museum for three months, but I mean, the, the job sector was terrible, so I was unemployed again, um, which is not great. But um, that, that was the thing. It, it just may sound like fairly daft, but like this is advice I do tend to give to like uh, volunteers who are interested. Is that um, basically what I found was that the job sector is so sort of bad anyway that it's not worth not doing what you want to do. I um, I know how many jobs I applied to when I was out of work that time, and it was all in the cultural sector. I did two hundred in two months. That's that's yeah. Yeah, I got one in the end, yeah. and then you know I got a job in Bolton, and they really helped me. I was in there for a month, but I adore them. Because they were just so nice, you know, when you've when it's all gone a bit wrong, yeah. and they're like, "Oh yeah, sure, here you go, have a yeah. have a job," and they were just lovely. They yeah. just it was, you know, it probably wasn't that great, but I in my head it's like the best place on earth. <laughs> That's cute. Awesome library. It's like yes, it's the greatest. <laughs> the best um, place on it. <laughs> um, I've done a job as a tram conductor in Beamish Museum, which was fun. Amazing. Yeah, it's quite good. That does. Um, it was good, it was good. Did you have to wear a costume? Yes. And also I worked on the Cutty Sark. Oh, cool. Uh, worked for National Trust and all manner of libraries, so public, private, academic. Yeah, I mean, I'm just I quite like working in strange places. I couldn't do an office job anymore. It's not too hard to do it. Just like, because it's a small building, a small organisation. That's generally how everything works. So I actually do the marketing, the uh, online publicity, 
a lot of the events organisation, volunteer coordination. But yeah, like uh, when I trained my first volunteer, that was pretty cool actually. I mean, I just remember like when I first volunteered, when I was like 16, 17, and I realised, oh, oh, that's me now. I may not have realised it, but I'm actually the person that was on the other side of the, the desk, you know. I always try to tend to think like I'm probably in the same mindset as like that. But like, I probably am. I think I definitely you know, feel like You I shouldn't am. lose that, you should stay. You should yeah, stay no, I know, yeah, I know, I know. that's the end of episode one thank you so much for listening we'll be back in february with an episode about love in the meantime you can follow us on twitter and instagram underscore uncatalogued thank you so much to the lovely glenn and the lovely matt for sharing their stories with us and for taking the time to chat to me i really appreciate it thank you to one of my oldest and dearest friends jack westmore for the brilliant music and thanks to everyone who's listened to me ramble on about this idea for the past few months, in particular Julia, Lena and my mum. Thanks for that. We'll be back in February. Hope to see you then. Bye.